a woman with what was then a foreign name and a seemingly foreign identity, chooses to embrace her obligations as a Yehudiah, a Jew, identifying herself proudly to Achashverosh, and, more than Mordechai, leading the Jewish response to Haman. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 268, What's in a Name? I'm Mayor Salvage. One of the most famous lines in literature is followed by a discourse on names. Juliet, aware that her family and Romeo's family are enemies, says, O Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. And she adds, Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name, and for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. Romeo replies, I take thee at thy word. Call me but love, and I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I never will be Romeo. The passage in the play is worthy of mention at this point in our biblical studies. For while we will not be discussing today the moral and political themes in Romeo and Juliet, we would do well to remind ourselves that names and family and identity are at the heart of this biblical book, and above all, the name of the woman whose name the book bears. One of the seemingly strangest and most striking aspects of the book's conclusion is the description of the holiday of Purim, chapter 9, verse 20. And Mordechai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Achashverosh, both near and far, to establish this among them that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same yearly, as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy and of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. These are the central rituals of Purim, along with the reading of the book of Esther. Days of feasting and joy, the sending of delicacies of one man to his fellow, and gifts to the poor. No other Jewish holiday bears an obligation like this. Thus, for example, Rosh Hashanah's central ritual is shofar, which we consider a clarion call from God and our cry to God. On the Day of Atonement, we repent before God. On Sukkot, we celebrate with joy in the presence of God. On Hanukkah, we recall Jewish victories that were achieved through the providence of God. On Passover, we commemorate and recollect our salvation in Egypt by the mighty hand of God, and on Shavuot we remember the giving of the Torah by God. Purim and only Purim contains obligations that, to use the rabbinic parlance, are ben adam laws obligating conduct between one person and another, rather than ben adam lamakom, between one and God. Why do Jews celebrate Purim by giving food to each other, by giving alms to each other? To understand these rules, that appear at the end of the book, we return to the book's beginning. As we mentioned yesterday, Mordechai is introduced to us with these words. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordechai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Yehonia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the young woman was fair and beautiful. 
And when her father and mother died, Mordechai took her for his own daughter. Jews who read these words, that there was a Jew in the court of Shushan and his name was Mordechai, have no idea how shocking they might have seemed when they were once written. On the one hand, Mordechai is a Jew. On the other hand, this very verse also informs us that in the Persia in which the story unfolds, the Jews have taken on not only Persian acculturation and Persian dress, but also Persian names. Mordechai and Esther are definitely not Jewish names. As we've mentioned in previous lectures, if you go to the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, you will see one of its most cherished exhibits, the reconstructed gate of the Mesopotamian king Nebuchadnezzar, known as the Ishtar Gate, named for the Babylonian goddess Ishtar and dedicated to the Babylonian god Marduk. These are the gods from whom Esther's and Mordechai's names are derived. Today, of course, Mordechai and Esther have become Jewish names, but Marduk and Ishtar are pagan divinities, and thus to the classical reader of the book of Esther, a deep tension can seemingly be discerned. This is a story where its heroes have names that are clearly not Jewish, names that are linked to a foreign religion. Their very names inspire the reader to ask, when push comes to shove and they are forced to choose, how will they see their identity? And if the reader might have initial doubts about Mordechai, it could be founded not only on his name, but also on the historical context. The tale occurs after the Persian Empire had allowed Israel to leave the lands of exile and return to the homeland. If, as he seems to be, the King Ahasuerus of this book is to be identified with Xerxes, then the tale occurs after the temple has already been rebuilt, meaning that the Jews who are now part of the Persian Empire in Persia and Babylonia are those who have chosen to stay, not return to the Holy Land. They are Jews who have become comfortable with diaspora life. We are therefore inspired to ask, how assimilated is Mordechai? How assimilated is Esther? How Jewishly do they see themselves? Meanwhile, Mordechai, at least, is known to be the court Jew by the Gentiles in the palace. The same cannot be said for his first cousin, who was brought before Ahasuerus. Upon her ascension to the throne, her Hebrew name, Hadassah, is never divulged, nor is her Jewishness and familial link to Mordechai. But we, the readers, know that they are both Jews. And we should also take note of another name that does not appear in most of the Bible, but is used countless times in Esther, which is Yehudi, Jew. Mordechai is called here a Yehudi. Throughout the Tanakh, the operative term is Yisrael, Israel. But in Esther, like in our parlance today, the chosen people are called Yehudim, Jews, an appellation that derives from one of Jacob's sons, the ancestor of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Yehuda or Judah. Now, there are, of course, historical reasons for the development of this term, historical reasons that we have seen. The fact that the southern kingdom of Judah was the last remaining Israelite kingdom. That is why Mordechai, as described in the book of Esther, is a Yemini, a Benjaminite. He is not from the tribe of Judah, but he is still called a Yehudi, a Jew. But there is perhaps a larger philosophical point to be made here as well. My grandfather, Avaron Soloveitchik, once suggested that if Jews today proudly call themselves after the tribe of Judah, whether or not we directly descend from him. It is because of Judah's great moment of repentance toward the end of the book of Genesis, the proud proclamation from the man who had originally suggested selling Joseph regarding his other half-brother, Benjamin. He proudly proclaims to the vizier of Egypt, whom he does not know, who happens to be Joseph in disguise, I am this boy's guarantor. I am responsible for him. Judah who first had the idea of selling Joseph, is sinner and then penitent, betrayer and then savior, coward and then hero. This time, Judah defends his brother. And that, my grandfather said, is a deeper reason for why Jews call themselves Yehudim, after Yehuda. 
the appellation proclaims that every Jew, bound in an intimate, familial relationship of responsibility with every other Jew, in the way that Yehuda was bound to Benjamin. We can now understand, ladies and gentlemen, the drama in this story. A woman with what was then a foreign name and a seemingly foreign identity chooses to embrace her obligations as a Yehudiah, a Jew, identifying herself proudly to Achashverosh, and, more than Mordechai, leading the Jewish response to Haman. Through Esther, Jewish solidarity is restored. Indeed, as many note, the salvation begins with Esther's instruction to Mordechai to gather all the Jews in Shushan to fast and pray on her behalf. One of the most striking features of the book of Esther, noted by everyone, is that there is one name that does not ever appear in this book, and that is the name of God. The point to be made here is not only that providence still exists in a world where miracles are not openly manifest. That for Judaism is axiomatic. Rather, the text removes explicit theology in order to make a theological point, that when the divine seeps absent, when the incentives for Jews to feel connected to one another are nowhere to be found, then still the mystical metaphysical bond between Jews can suddenly make itself manifest. And then, in that miraculous, enduring bond, God can be seen. The story of Purim is first and foremost a story of Jewish identity and responsibility. And that is why the central ritual commandments of Purim center not on prayer to God, but on obligations to other Jews. The goal of commemorating and celebrating the story of Esther is not only to rediscover the providential, divine director of history, but also to reawaken within us a deeper understanding of Jewish identity, of our obligations to and responsibilities for each other as Yehudim. The book of Esther reminds us that if a man named Marduk never forgets that he is a Jew, if a queen of Persia named Ishtar risks her life as a Jew for her fellow Jews, then No matter what trappings we may have taken on, we too remain Jews and are bound to one another. And this, I think, is the true meaning of the Purim tradition of donning costumes on the holiday, so that in Jewish neighborhoods on Purim, you will find children adorned with seemingly other identities, but still acting like Jews, still reading the book of Esther in Hebrew in the synagogue, still distributing Purim gifts to their fellow Jews, still eating a Purim meal still singing Purim songs. It is often said that the purpose of costumes on Purim is to remember Esther's initial hiding of her own identity. But the truth, I think, is the exact opposite. We wear costumes not to disguise our identity, but rather to emphasize that no superficial sartorial selection can undo our identity as Jews, and that ultimately, our dedication as Jews shines through. As we mentioned, in the end, strikingly, It is because of the veneration that her story attracted among Jews throughout the centuries that the appellation Esther itself became a Jewish name, and that is apt. The way that Esther, as a Jew and as a queen, fought so proudly for her people, the fact that her battle for her people was waged not only as a subject of the king named Hadassah, but as a queen reigning as Esther, inspires us to celebrate all that she did, remembering how Esther reigned as a Yehudiah. What's in a name? In the case of the Book of Esther, so beloved and admired throughout the Jewish generations, there is so, so much in a name indeed. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.